You're listening to the Hunt the High Country podcast, brought to you by AltitudeOutdoors.com. All right, guys, thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Hunt the High Country podcast. Here at Altitude Outdoors, we're burning the midnight oil here in the back room of the Altitude Outdoors shop, and we're going to switch it up a little bit this uh, episode. My guest today is my usually my co-host. I'm going to wel- welcome Billy Kennington to the podcast. It's good to be here, Brad, as always. We always kind of bring somebody else in and talk mule deer, it seems like, but you had a pretty epic season this last, this last year. year. did. We just thought, let's get on and we'll talk about that, uh, Billy's season this year. Um, he harvested a huge typical buck. I think we scored him at 205, and that's with no extra, well, he's got one little extra on his base. Yeah. It's an inch long. I don't. I don't know if we count it or not. I don't know. And then uh, his brother Taylor also killed a big buck. I think we green scored him at one ninety seven. Yeah, one ninety seven. Like non typical. Yeah, cool. Non typical. Some inlines and cheaters and trash. So, anyway, let's just jump into it, Billy. We scouted a bunch early season together. I uh, was so busy during the later part of the season that Billy and his brother Taylor were out scouting a lot, and I just remember going over to his house. This was like a week before the archery hunt, maybe. A little neighborhood barbecue, and Bill, and Billy's being all weird over there looking at his phone. So I knew he'd found a buck, so he showed it to me, and uh, we just started a game plan from then. But anyway, why don't you go kind of into that, into your process about just through the whole season, kind of what you guys were seeing and different from past years maybe, and you know how you found that buck and all that. So we started scouting early in some areas that Brad and I had been hunting for a few years um we've seen a lot of really good deer but honestly i don't think that we've ever been able to truly crack the code for for that area it seems like it's more of a transitional area we have a lot of really really good deer in there and a lot of big deer but you know turning them up i mean other than your 2016 buck um i don't know if they're transitioning through there or what's going on that's really where we started i found just a really just a hog typical there too i mean probably a 190 typical that was in a, an area that was just going to be awesome to archery hunt um had some other good bucks some bucks that we had found and i have you know a couple years of video of um and it's crazy it, um watching these these younger bucks blow up and we found one that did and so we were planning initially to hunt him but um, as everyone remembers here in the Wyoming Range, you know, we had a really dry summer. Um, and we were a little bit worried about even having water. You know, there's no water up there for us. Um, and we're packing all of our water and cashing. And, I mean, it's, it's pretty, pretty hellacious to get in there. We scouted the other side this year. We scouted, you know, the multiple areas around just seeing if it was a transition area. And one thing I remember, as August uh, crept on, we were finding those bucks lower and lower and lower. And like the last week, it was it was really hard. We didn't find anything. We found some of the small bucks. You know, we had some plans to scout some other areas, so of course we're hitting as much area as we can. But I really just ended up, too, because we weren't really finding the bucks being in the same area all the time. We were just checking a lot of different areas. So um, my dad and I actually went out on a, on a scouting trip. It was the end of August, and uh, that's, when, that's when I really found this special deer. 
Um, I've seen a lot of big deer, you know, in my lifetime. Um, but this was, this was one of the, it was the biggest as, as well as, you know, I mean, just, you just don't find deer like this every year. Well, the other thing about this year that I think was different than years past is we got a really early start Yeah. because we wanted to look at new areas, more like access and looking for signs of pressure from hunters from past years and stuff like that. Yeah, that's one, one thing that we did. We went into an area that, again, we're, we're doing a lot of e-scouting. I spend tons and tons of time on every every second that i can on google earth and maps and everything just trying to identify areas that either people overlook or that you know we can always scout just to get in there and put boots on the ground you know we always try to get in two or three areas um just the way our schedules were we i mean we had to start first of july end of june um to hang trail cameras and and we got into that one area you know, it's amazing to me, even though the, we knew, we could tell a lot just with the sign that was there. I mean, there was definitely a horse sign. But again, it's just, you got to get boots on the ground to crack that code because we'd hunted areas around it. Um, and we know that, you know, some of this area is a transition area that some of these bucks move through. Um, but yeah, we, we were up there pretty much with the snow line. It was amazing to me how many, how many deer were, still, were up there at that time. I think they chase the snow line because they're getting the nutrient-rich little teeny forbs and grasses and stuff like that. But the thing that I found frustrating this year was because we started so early, it's almost too early to look at bucks, I think. Oh, it was. We were looking at bucks, and we were finding bucks, and seeing bucks that had a ton of potential. I mean, who knows where they're going to end up. Like, they could be 170-inch deer, or they could be 210-inch deer. You just can't tell. And I think of like one buck in particular that we saw with a bachelor herd who was just, he looked like he was going to be huge, but it's like early July and who knows where he ended up. From experience, I've learned that, you know, a lot of these early scouting trips is just to learn the country, look at the sign, you know, try to try to look at the habitat and confirm, you know, what we're seeing on Google Earth. You know, really with Google Earth, I spend more time looking at, you know, trying to find sign. Um, and really, as much time as I've spent, I found that, I mean, if you can find game trails and stuff and see them from Google Earth, you're going to find bucks. And so just going in there and confirming and looking, you know, even at tracks or, you know, even figuring out where to put the tents. I mean, it always takes us two or three times to, to glass an area of going in to figure out, you know, how the land's laid out and how to actually the, the terrain opens up. Um, and sometimes we're completely on the wrong side of the ridge or vice versa. We've got to go to the other side of the basin. So, I mean, it's a perfect time to do that just to get boots on the ground, um, figure out where to camp to keep your keep out of these buck country because once these, these bucks, especially once they get hard-horned, you better know how to move around there without them detecting you or you're not going to see them. So, and even I found really good bucks um, in July and then never seen them again. And especially here in the Wyoming Range, I think that, that that's a that's pretty common. You know, even the first part of August, a lot of times it's hard to you know turn up those bucks. Some of them are in their their summer slash fall patterns, but some of them are still moving. And so you know, I don't. I've learned I don't really get too serious about even naming bucks or even trying to relocate them until even the end of August. So. 
a lot of these recon is just learning the area, learning the terrain, learning how the deer move through the terrain, looking for sign, looking for sign from past hunts, looking from sign from other humans, or um, and really trying to figure out water and everything else. So, I think this year, compared to like the last three or four, was weird. Like you said, it dried out really bad. So typically, when we're going in fifteenth of August last sort of that last couple scouting trips if you've found a buck or a lot of times we'll find bucks right in that time frame that we decide to hunt but they moved this year so it was like august early august you were finding them or in late july and then it was so dry that everything burned up yeah taylor and i actually went in and, and uh, archery hunted that buck um the first the first day um we went up there we went high and it was so burnt off i mean we saw, I think, one one little forky horn, um, and then one okay buck. Um, I couldn't tell exactly how big he was because it was right in, you know, right in dawn. But you know, it's it, it was hard. We hunted. I mean, we hunted hard, and we cover we covered the miles, and just the sign wasn't there. It took us dropping down fifteen hundred to two thousand feet before we even found the feed. And once we found the feed, then you know the deer. The deer sign was there, so I think all those bucks had moved off. But in that particular area, they're in the really deep, deep, nasty cover, and and trying to get a vantage even to find them, you know, is can be difficult. So that's one thing for guys to realize that. I mean, I've I mean I've stocked archery bucks up there multiple times, and I mean you and I have seen really good deer, but I'd be hard pressed to say that they they were that high. The sign just wasn't there, so. You know, that's one thing. I mean, year to year, I mean, having a little bit of a drought, not having the feed can change, and, and the, the the bucks will react to that. Just something to keep in mind, I think, especially if you're hunting the same areas year after year, and for some reason one year you can't find them, or if you've had a drought year before and learned from that year, you can kind of take take that into account. You know, we've had shed hunting is a similar thing, um, there's a place that a buddy and I used to go, and depending on your snow levels for the winter, right, the sheds will be in different places. And I think it's the same thing. It's just a reaction to the natural environment, and they're moving down, chasing feed to where they can access it. And they're harder to find down there for sure. I think pretty much anywhere in the west, as you drop from above timberline or close to it down, you know, in elevation, you're gonna you're gonna lose that open country, and you're gonna get into more cover obviously more broken terrain harder to glass you don't have as much it's harder to get advantage it's harder to find them and just another important point the year before that after the the really hard winter of 2016-17 like i mean it was almost opposite (laughs) those the those the feed was nuts and so those bucks it took them a long time in fact i don't ever think they got as high as they usually are in august just because that they didn't have to so, I mean, it's something to, to be aware of, um, you know, and not get discouraged when those bucks aren't sitting exactly. They're, they're there. <laughs> I mean, how many bucks have we seen year after year? I've got, I've got a whole computer full. Um, and we can identify, you know, bucks as there. I mean, they're there. It's just, you know, they react to the environment, just like you're saying. And, and, you know, winter in this country and the moisture and the vegetation is is huge i mean that's why they go to the high country so well and i i think bucks have their own personalities too you know there's been bucks that you can find almost every time in and then there's other bucks you'll get a single glimpse at 
and maybe you'll find him the next year. You know, I can think of a few just off the top of my head that we saw in 2016 and then didn't see him during the hunting season. But then the next year, scouting in, this, in, in the same areas or close to him, we saw him. But then during the hunting season, they weren't there, right? So, But then there's other bucks that are there all the time, and you see them almost every time you go in. You know, the more that I learn about big bucks, again, there's always, you know, outliers within that. But just as we were talking, we've talked many times before with other great mule deer hunters, that's their home. You know, they've got so many nooks and crannies and folds in the country that they can hide in. They know how to move around and not get seen. They're there. The more that I learn about big deer... They don't move very far, um, if at all. It's just they know how to move around the country without being detected. But, you know, I think we romanticize a lot about big deer, too, that they, they, they know exactly when hunting season, you know, starts. I think it's a biological things happening with them as well, where they go hard horn. Their, their antlers aren't as sensitive. You know, a lot of times, you know, even in the big open um, basins that the feed isn't there the feed is more down in the trees but we have to realize that at this time these I mean these high country bucks are preparing for fall and they're getting their fall coats and I mean it's amazing to, for me to watch that transition between you know the reds to that fall coat and they don't like the sun and so they're spending a time out but I think we romanticize that you know they know when hunting season is I think it's more that they're moving down because of that, and the pressure has some to do with it. But big bucks have chinks in their armor too, and you just have to spend the time and you know figure them out. I, again, there's always luck that's in, involved, but you know we put them up on a pedestal and then say, oh, they're not here or, or you know whatever. They're there. We just got to spend the time, different perspectives and directions to actually you know, just catch them. It only takes once. They only have to make one mistake. Well, I think we also put a deer in a box and say they live in an area, but they, they're they always in transition, right? Like, if people are like, oh, he lives here. If, if it's his summer range, he only lives there, in this country anyway, for like a month, right? Like, his the place they live the most is on the winter range. Like, if they're going to stay in one spot the longest, if you're going to call somewhere their home, that's where I would call their home, right? They've got a summer home, and then they're going to transition in between those. But they're always in transition. Like, I think that's one of the most amazing things about deer, like, through the 12-month calendar of the year. I mean, there's hardly a month that they're going to be the same as they were the month before. They're putting on their winter coat, or they're growing antlers, or they're shedding them, or they're shedding their winter coat. They're changing colors, you know. And they're running. Yeah. And so it's, they're always in transition, and I think we can kind of learn, you know, different areas are going to have different challenges. Like we hunt a migrating mule deer herd here. Some of them only migrate a mile, but some of them migrate... 70, 100. Yeah, over 100 miles. So whereas areas where you have a deer herd that kind of stays put, they're not going to be, while they're still transitioning, they might kind of have a home that they live in most of the time. You know, and I think another important thing to to even state about this, you know, Brad and I talk to a lot of mule deer hunters. Um, we pretty much follow all the anything about mule deer, um, and the consensus is pretty much the same. But honestly, all this is anecdotal. 
like there is a few studies out there that they've collared bucks but that is one thing about this Wyoming mule deer initiative specifically the Wyoming range initiative that they just started with the phase three this year they collared bucks like everything that we're learning um, is you know just for perspective it's not based on science and with this data, I think it could go one or two ways. I mean, I believe it's going to validate what we've already known. But, you know, I mean, all this is anecdotal until we have the true research. And that's why projects like, well, like the Wyoming Range Initiative are so important because that's going to help us, you know, to manage them. I mean, we have deer that end up in Idaho. We have deer that end up over by Evanston. We have deer that end up, you know, in Nugget Canyon down by Cammer. We have deer that end up in LaBarge, and yet they all summer in the same spot. Why? The, you know, the hypothesis is that, the, the, that their mother takes them there. That's based on does, and you and I both have seen big bucks on that end up there that one year, and they're not necessarily there the next year. I mean, I firmly believe because we see them and find the same deer in the summer range that they come back to the summer range. But how did they find that? We don't know. You know, and that's what this research is going to tell us. And I think it's going to it's going to be astronomical in, in actually helping us understand these, the, not only the migration corridors, but the, the, the behaviors of these bucks. Yeah, hopefully it gives us some insight into helping the decline of mule deer across the West. I think there's things that play into it that, I think they're thought of like grazing practices and fire suppression and like uh, human travel and all that kind of stuff that we don't fully understand how it affects the deer, right? I think like in our ranges, sheep are a huge are huge grazers. Like you've got these herds of a thousand sheep or more that come through an area and they take all the feed. And so how's that? They're in the mid level versus the high level elevation wise on the range. Is that going to affect the deer right if they're if you've got deer that are on their summer range at the tip tops of the divide and then when the weather hits they move down and you had a sheep herd move through that transition area and take all their feed we're gonna i think we'll understand a little bit more how those practices can affect the deer herd and what they have there you know the interesting thing we talked about with braxton's story on our last podcast was um that fat content analysis stuff where they it was indicative of summer range competition which was kind of backwards of what everybody kind of thinks, right? We all think, oh, it's it's the winter range. You have bad winters. That's what kills deer. But these deer had come out of the summer in the worst shape Dr. Monteith had said that he'd ever seen a herd in. Right. So, yeah, the spring they, and the, the feed was absolutely right. phenomenal. Right, great feed, mild winters for the last five years, and we saw individual health decrease. Why is that happening? Like, I think by understanding their behavior and where they are during certain times of the year, exactly, and where other things are taking place at the same times, I think I think we can get a better picture of how we're affecting mule deer populations through things like grazing practices and recreational ATVing, things like that, I think. We're passionate about mule deer. No, no gimmick there. But, you know, there's got to be a balance for everything. And, you know, just having the research will help us to better make these decisions, not only management, but even, you know, recreationally. Because, in my opinion, if we don't protect a resource, you know, who knows what it's going to be in, in the next generation. And I hope that, that my boys have the same opportunities that I've had. And, you know, this, this, this research will help with that. 
Anyway, let's get let's get back to the fun stuff here. So I think what's interesting, I mean, we talked about deer pulling out of the high country and all that, but when you walked up on this big buck, you walked into a bedding area. You were in the timber, not in a big open area, and kind of walked right up on this deer. So just to give some preface to that, um, this area that we went to, my grandfather actually outfitted this um, a long time ago. And to hear his stories, there's there's times that he's hence gone, but there's times that I wish that I could pick his brain. And I didn't know what I had when he was around. He's been gone for quite a while now. But, um, you know, I grew up hunting this area. Um, Brad and I have been doing mainly a lot of together backpacking and that kind of um, adventure. Again, Dad and I just decided to go back into this area that we, we hadn't been for for a while um, and you know growing up we, we hunted these deer a little bit different but I wanted to utilize the techniques and and you know just in the information and the, and the knowledge that I've gained on mule deer behavior so we went into this area and we got in there really late um, one night we had, we'd already pre-scouted and figured out where we were going to be sitting the next morning we got up there I didn't see a flipping deer there was nothing um, I really started noticing that the feed was bad. There was not a lot of sign. I was getting really nervous because we we've been taking really good deer out of these areas. Came back and regrouped with Dad, and he he didn't see a deer either. He had actually a deer had winded him that morning, um, but again we assumed it was a buck. It had a buck track, but knowing how big it was. So we spent another day and a half combing that area, trying to figure out where they were, and we just couldn't find them. And so we were pretty, you know, pretty discouraged. So we got into an area, and I just I pulled out my phone and just thought, well, we've got a, you know, we've already gone through Plan B, C, and D, and it's just not panning out. And I really truly believe it was because of the 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 feed and I just got looking at, at areas and we actually found an area that we'd never been into and I, I told dad I said you know what just from what it looks like and the, the prior experience that I've had scouting if there's a big deer in this area he's going to be right here um, but looking at it there was no vantage there's no way to access that area unless we're right in it so really, you know, and I've, I've been kind of the school of thought, and I'm guilty of kind of staying back and not being terribly aggressive, you know, during the scouting season, even though I can't, you know, there's certain pockets and certain folds that I can't see into. You know, I just have felt it's better to not go in there. But we didn't really have anything to lose, and so we went in there. We had a plan. We totally obeyed the wind. We went in about 4 o'clock, so we knew that, you know, if the deer were going to be up in that area, they'd be feeding, but they wouldn't—they wouldn't necessarily be terribly alert because they would be feeding or they'd be asleep. So we planned that that we were still hunting through somewhere. But again, I mean, I had a wind checker. We were checking the wind. We were just—we were just working so carefully through that area, and we came around a corner, came around a tree, and uh, I mean, immediately. I had a, I mean, one of the biggest framed deer I'd ever seen, and he was laying 80 yards away from me, and his head was right on the ground, but there's no way we'd have found that deer. No way. I mean, you could, there's no vantage, no matter where you are, that you would have been able to see him. 
and you know knowing big buck behavior and then knowing now what I do I mean he was using folds in that country even though it looked semi-open you would have never seen him if you would have just been behind the glass so after dad and I had found him I mean we were we were stuck he had us pinned you know, I was a little bit nervous um, getting him on camera, but I knew that I had to just with how big as he was. Um, so he actually, and I told Dad, I just said, you know, we can't make eye contact with him. We, you know, instantly when I found him, I just sat right down and was as quiet as I could. And I just told Dad, did couldn't even see him for a long time because I wouldn't let him move. Because, you know, the more that you move, he's going to be alert. And I just didn't want to sp spook him. But eventually I got got my backpack open and got a got a camera and if I was not looking at him and just moving really really quiet he uh he actually let me get away with quite a bit. <laughs> I mean again this is this is some range so I've got I was able to get some footage of him and gosh I I don't know some of the best footage I've ever seen of a big deer you know because he was so close. He thought he was hid and I think he would have laid there the whole time but again we were We'd come around that tree, and we were out in the open, so we had to move to get back. And, you know, when we started moving, sliding back to get out of the way, he, he actually got nervous and got up, um, left. I was pretty nervous about having spooked him because I've known that, you know, deer have gone nocturnal before. But he, when he went off just reading his body language and everything, I mean, he even stood up. He didn't blow out. He just licked his lips for a minute, and then he just kind of bounded off. And, I mean, one bound, he had a tree between us, as they always do. And he wasn't really, I mean, he bounded about twice, and then he just kind of jogged out there and just put some cover between us. But um, I actually moved really quick so I could see exactly where his escape route, because he's going to use his number one escape route, and that's just more information than I had. So from there, I wanted to gain as much information as as I could. I mean, we had obviously spooked him. I mean, I knew that we had a few hours. He wasn't going to come back, <laughs> if, if at all. Um, and I was curious to even see if he was going to come back. And so I actually went down to the bed he was laying in and just trying to get recon. The instant that I saw him, I knew he was going to be my target deer for that year, not only that year, but probably until he was either dead or I couldn't find him again just because he was so special. And so we went down there, um, and in his bed, I, I've always learned that every buck has a, a pretty unique track, and this, this buck was no exception. I mean, he had a giant body, and so I expected a big track, but I had no idea. Um, and his track was actually almost as big as a cow elk. I mean, it was absolutely huge. Um, and so I, I pulled my phone out and was taking pictures just so I could remember it. If you see that track, you know he's there. We actually named him. Well, I didn't want to name him because, um, you know, I always like to see a buck a couple times before I name him. But in the back of my mind, it was so big, I, had, I wanted to call him Clydesdale or Clyde because, I mean, he, he was just gigantic. So we ended up actually putting, I had a I had a trail camera in my backpack, and really the only reason I put it on that bed was to see if he'd come back and lay on it. I mean, I, I mean that's a, a rare opportunity to gain some pretty significant intel on a on a big deer and big deer behavior. And so I put a I put a trail cam, of course, to be hidden, that it wouldn't spook him. But I mean, we had already spooked him. Our scent was already there, so I might as well use the 
use the information that I had. And it was a gamble that I had. My dad was even like, do you even want to go down there? And I said, what have we got to lose? So we put a game camera right on that bed, and I actually tracked him in and found, you know, about 10 other beds that he'd been in with his track in it that was within probably 80 yards. So I knew at that point I pretty much found his bedroom. Um, He liked that area. Um, There was some other buck sign in there, but mostly his. And then just from there, you're just looking at the terrain and, you know, on my phone with Google Earth and Onyx Maps, I I realized that just the way the terrain was, there was only two access points in there. And from there, I just found, found his watering area, and of course his track was there from that day, that morning. And then uh, um, also found two of his main feeding areas. I'm sure he had more, but two of his main where he was spending most of his time. So it was it was his track that really led and gave me most of that information. So when you set your cameras, so you you set a camera on his bed. I did. And then did you set any other cameras? I put them at all the pinch points for how he was accessing that area as well. So and what did that show you? Um, he actually came back that night. To his bed? He came back. Um, he didn't lay in his bed. I mean, he obviously knew what we were, but he was assessing the danger. Came back to his bed. He spent probably a half hour there. He was, he was pretty thorough from what I could tell from the camera. And then he actually went out the, the top access point, and he didn't come back to that specific area um, until the night before I killed him. But... That doesn't mean just that camera was only on that one bed. You know, after after I killed him, I did walk through there, and there, I mean, the best that I could tell because it was so dry, I mean, there was other signs, so I don't think he necessarily was using that bed. I think it scared him a little bit because he was caught. I mean, he was right on the fringe. He was just out just a little bit, tucked away, but um, if he'd have been in those trees another five feet, I'd have never seen him. I think he was still there. I really do. I just don't think he laid out there. I mean, he was he was nervous because he'd got caught with his pants down pretty much. I he laid in that bed that night. I mean, he laid there for 4 hours from what I could tell, but it was in complete darkness. So the night the night before the rifle opener. Correct. I think that's a good uh point to carry some cameras with you all the time. Um I do better with them if I just throw them up. <laughs> on a hunch seems like maybe one we set last year when we watched a lot of deer move through a pinch point and then we set it there but then i moved it this year because i i thought it'd be better just down the hill a little on a bigger trail and i don't think it was better (laughs) what do you think about that would you again cameras are just a tool again you're only gonna see where that camera i mean they only have to walk five feet to the left and you're never gonna see them so i don't think you can totally totally rely on them all the time um honestly it wasn't the camera i didn't even check the cameras until after i killed him it wasn't the camera that killed this buck i think it's another tool but yeah i usually have i use it more to to figure out a specific deer and i'm i'm learning that you know usually getting your eyes on them first and then try to crack the code of the country of how they're moving around i mean cameras are invaluable because my plan was, you know, I had recon with the cameras to see, number one, to see if he was even in the country. Number two, you know, to give me more information of what the deer were moving and what basically what time they were moving. 
so that I could look at the surrounding areas and try to figure out the best chance to, to find, you know, where the specific deer were. I like having one in my, in my backpack, and I usually do carry one around with me, even though they're heavy, you know, just because you never know what you're going to find. And, I mean, there's no way I would have went, even if I, so if I'd have seen this buck and then went back, there's no way I would have went back and put a camera in there. I mean, you're just too exposed. You're going to pollute that. I mean, we'd already spooked him once, um, and if we'd have spooked him again, he's going to go totally nocturnal, and he's going to be even in the deeper cover. So, I mean, just because I had it is the reason that I put it. So if you don't have it, I mean, there's no reason to to even put it put it out there because a lot of times you're going to pollute the area to the point you're going to change what they're doing. But really, you never even checked cameras until you hunted the deer. I didn't. My I, Again, my goal was to do what I did opening morning. If he didn't play his part and show up, I at least had more intel to try to try to figure out what was going on. Because number one at that time, I didn't even know if he had blown the country. You know, I hoped and from what I had seen with other big deer, especially at that time in their summer ranges, I knew that I hoped that if I didn't push him, that he would he would just go right back to what he was doing. Kind of go through your process from that point. So you'd seen him, you blew him out, you set your cameras. And then we and, left. And I know, I know <laughs> yeah, and then you left. So I, I know the answer to this question, but I think for everybody that's kind of tuning in and listening, and this is something that we've you and I have done in the past on that deer I killed in 2016, right, is is that you don't go back. Right. I went home, I studied everything I could. I mean, I had a target, and I had a target for a year, for years. I mean, this was a deer I was going to hunt until he either was dead, or killed by someone else, or he wasn't around. I was so worried about polluting that area just with, I mean, honestly, the whole area that he was living in, from what I could tell, was about 400 yards. He was living close to people. He had found a way to survive, and I just knew that if I went back in, I, I wanted to kill him with a bow. I really did. You even said to me after I told you that, and we we talked about it and freaked out, both freaked out a little bit. Um, you even told me, you know, you should hunt him with a bow. But the more that I looked at that country, I realized, number one, that if I ever did get a shot at him again, it was going to be 80-plus yards. And I am just not a very, I'm just not confident with archery equipment that far. Um, I wasn't going to wound a deer like that or have something happen. And number two, you know, you'd have to, you'd have to pollute that, that area. And I just, I just knew that if I did that, my chances of, of screwing him up were just, and you know, there was other places that were very close that he would just dive off into and I'd never find him. I mean, he had enough cover around him. The only really killable place was where he was, and I was just hoping he would, you know, and it, it seemed like he was he was comfortable there, and so I wanted to keep him there, and that's the reason I didn't go back. So I only saw him the one time. I did everything I could, you know, with Google Earth and then with the information that I had, um, but, I ne- yeah, I never went back, and honestly, to this day, I think if I would have, I'd have blown him out, and it would have, I would have never found him again. Yes, well, I mean, it's hard to say for sure, but there's a good chance of it. So I'm hoping that everyone that's kind of listening, we like to tell the stories, but that we can all pull some, some kind of ideas and tactics 
strategy out of everything that we hear. If I had only had an archery tag, you bet I would have hunted him. But here in Wyoming, you know, we can hunt them archery, and then people that say even hunting mule to beat these big bucks with a rifle is easy is crazy because they're, it's not. But it does give us a little bit more of an advantage. And a buck like this, I was willing to take as much advantage as I, want, as I could get. I just opted and knew that my chances were just higher of being successful with that rifle in my hand versus a bow. Do I wish I kill, could have killed him with a bow? I think everyone does. But in that cir- certain circumstance, I don't think there's a hunter alive that unless you're getting truly lucky that could have got it done. It's just the way the terrain was. It was just the way everything played out, the small n- nature of that area. And the wind, the wind was absolutely wrong all the time. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. That's, I think that's important to point out because not everywhere has the that advantage or that uh, extra opportunity like Wyoming does to hunt with an additional weapon. But there's a lot. I mean, there's a lot of states that do. Idaho being one and Utah through their dedicated hunter program and a few other things like that. So so I know after you find a buck like that and then not being able to go back in there can kind of drive you a little bit crazy. What was your preparation like and kind of step through how you built your game plan on... Uh, what you were going to do that opening morning of the rifle hunt, or even the night before? Well, everything that I did from that point on, I mean, that's the one of the only deer. I mean, we've had target deer before, but this was a deer that I was going all in. I mean, this was this was a deer that was, was special, and it was him or nothing. I studied everything I could. Again, I used the information that I'd gained from those feeding areas. I just studied that. The, just the map. I studied maps. I studied topo maps. I studied Google Earth. I studied Onyx maps. I studied everything that I could to try to gain as much information of, you know, when the sun was coming up, when it would hit that, that high ridge above him, what I suspected that the wind was going to do. I kind of knew, but, you know, even those kind of things of what time the sun sets, what's the best angle to look into those those trees that you know that he was in i figured that the only way to kill him was above him i mean that's how we got in there without him detecting us at 80 yards but he was tucked up into a crevice and into you know folds in the country that i had to go way down the ridge to be even be able to see into it i never would have known exactly where to sit to have the best vantage of of where to be if I hadn't studied that on Google Earth. And there's no way, there was one, I mean, it was a little divot, and I had to actually, I figured, um, I looked at a lot of the wind predictions for that area, and I actually had to wait opening morning, I had to wait almost a half hour before the sun came up, I mean, once the sun was come up, to hit that, that high ridge so that the thermals would change. Because if the thermals were going down, um, he would have winded me, and there's no way. I mean, I was on, I was, I was within scary close. I shot him; it was 236 yards. I mean, he'll wind you at that. So I had figured out exactly how, basically, at what time that sun was going to hit that high ridge, and the thermals would change to be able to sneak up over there. I even had the the, the tree marked that I was going to crawl under to, so that he couldn't see me. Um, and so you're just taking the chance that he's moving a little later. 
either that or laying in that bed somewhere. I, I mean, I had planned to sit on that ridge and glass those trees all day. I wasn't going to leave. I wasn't going to move. I was going to sneak in there when the thermals changed, and I was going to glass that all day. I knew where his bedroom was. If he didn't show up that day, I probably would have went down and checked the cameras to see if he was there. But I didn't. I didn't dare doing it before I gave him one complete day to, you know, to find him. And I honestly expected to find him in a bed. I didn't expect it to happen exactly the way it did. I thought he. I thought he would be laying in a bed when I shot him. Okay, so now tell us how it played out. So you come over the ridge, you wait for the sun to hit it. Well, first of all, we get in there. I mean, we've never hunted this area and on opening morning. We get in there, and, I mean, there's so many trucks. I mean, we went in with the horses. We get in there, and there's three other camps. <laughs> and they are close, like super close. And I was freaking out, freaking out then. Because then I was just like, I'm, I, you know, I missed my chance. I would have had this buck all to myself if I'd have, if I'd have come in here with the archery qui- equipment, but I didn't. And so I just, my mind kept racing. It was just like, with all these people in here, what do I do? You know, do I change my plans? You know, do I do anything? And you know what I said? The best chance that I have as a steer is to just stick with my guns, do what I've planned to do, and just quit worrying about everyone else. You know, I just I just did exactly what I'd planned to do. Even though there was, I mean, three other camps and who knows how many hunters around him, I just did what I had planned because I knew that I had more intel on that buck than anyone on that mountain. And I'd done my homework. And so I just stuck to the plan. I went up the ridge. I actually had to wait. I had to wait almost a half hour after I could see. And my plan was to look at some other areas that he might be in and... Of course, you know, there's gunshots going off. <laughs> it was hard, but I stuck to my plan. I, cl- I crawled under that tree, um, and I sat down, and I just started pounding it. Just pounding it with the glass. He was close enough. I just, I didn't even get my spotter out then. I just, uh, a 10 by 42s on a tripod as, as solid as I could, and I was looking in those bedding areas because I honestly thought with that many people, he's, he's going to be nocturnal, and he's going to be in the shadows already. And so I glassed and glassed and glassed and nothing. <laughs> and I really started getting nervous then because there's gunshots going, you know, all the way around me. Well, I think something to point out there, it's pretty easy when you get in the heat of the moment to abandon your game plan, which I think we've all done it in the past, where you're like, oh, this happened, or your mind starts playing games with you, or he's not here, right? Like how easy would it have been to panic and go somewhere else after you've glassed the, in there for an hour and he's not there? or the weather changes. I've just found that I've found the most success when I make a game plan beforehand because you've been thinking about it for a lot of hours, you know, and pouring over maps and thinking about scenarios and weather and the wind and all that. I mean, you're exactly right. I just kept in my mind, I kept saying, for this to work out, this is my highest percentage chance of doing it. And I've got to stick to it because anything else is just luck. I mean, I've got to have I've got to have that chance in my favor. It's just not going to work out. I mean, I've got I've got numerous years where I've done that. Numerous times it doesn't work out. Yeah, well, you've, there's always a little bit of luck tied in with it. The crazy thing about this buck is he was somewhat out in the open when he started coming towards me. I mean, I saw him right in the open. I mean, he was in the cover, but he was in the folds of the cover. Um, he was right at the edge, and he was working his way right up to that bed. When I first saw him, 
I knew it was him instantly just because he had a giant frame. I didn't I didn't look. <laughs> All I saw was a giant frame and I said I just got to kill this deer right now cuz he I mean he was he was close. Um he was somewhat out in the open, but of course he's looking right in my direction because that's the only place where the danger is going to come and he knew it. And so I had to be careful as he was looking I thought you know, he could have either gone two ways. He could have went one way, and I never got a shot at him, or he could have kept coming. And I just thought, you know what, he's got, he's within, you know, five to ten yards that he's in trouble. And I can't wait any longer. There's a time I've got to move now. I can't let him get to those trees because by then I may not ever have a shot. And so I just laid, I just laid my tripod down, and I just moved for my rifle that was you know, two feet behind me that was positioned already to already rock. Um, and he saw me. He saw me instantly. I don't think he knew what was going on because I was, you know, I was pretty low, but, and I had some cover. And he instantly put the cover in between me and him because he saw the movement. Right. Because he's looking right right where the, the danger would come from. And so I settled in and uh, I had to wait for him. He was behind a tree, and all I could see was just the very, very front part of his chest. Not enough that it was um, where I could kill him, either that or shoot him in the neck. I don't. Even then, it would have been really low. I don't know if it would have killed him. So I just settled in behind and let him um, make the decision, and he knew something was up. And he went to spin is what he did, and at that point, I just let him have it. One mistake I, I made, I was more... I was more worried about shooting him, and I didn't check the bubble level on my rifle. And even at 238 yards, uh, my my gun was canned. I hit him pretty far back, but he was whirling too. I just knew I had to get a bullet in him. Um, I didn't hear it hit that first shot, but I knew that he was hit just the way he was acting. I mean, he was going. I mean, he whirled, and then he and then he was just going slow off that bench. And so, I mean, it just gave me enough time to jack another shell, and all I had was the, the very top three inches of his, of his spine. I mean, it was quick, but I've made that shot, you know, numerous times. <laughs> I mean, 238 yards, I, I mean, that's, I can put it in a, you know, on a dime of that far. And so I shot, and I instantly heard the thwack. And at that point, I knew he was done, because I knew that I'd, I'd spined him. I just sat there. I mean, it was just crazy. This is one of the the first bucks, other than bucks that I've been with you, that you know this has happened to me where I actually kill the buck that I've been after. And so you know, and then after they're down, I never get really. I don't get buck fever until after it's over, and then I go nuts. And so I was actually just going crazy. And you know, the cool thing for me was. It's the only place on that mountain I have cell service <laughs> right where I sit. And so I actually was able to call my wife and let her know that I'd actually, I'd, I mean, I knew it was him. So I knew that with him being hit like that, I just, it was the hardest thing, but I knew I had to wait. I've just walked up on <laughs> too many bucks that have, that you push and then you never find them. Um... There are helped people that have done that. You just get excited and go down there, and they lay there and then jump up and run off. And once they run off, your chances of, of getting them are, are truly small. So I, I waited. I waited almost 45 minutes before I went down there. And when I went down there, 
the terrain was so different from where I shot him, even though it was 238 yards, I couldn't find where he was standing. And so I was taking my rangefinder out and ranging back where I was, and I couldn't find blood, and by this this point I'm sick, you know, and and everything, and the what I thought was the bench he was on, and he wasn't there, and I'm thinking, you know, I just screwed up the, the, the biggest buck that I've ever seen, and especially a typical you know i've I've seen deer that have scored better but not nothing like a typical like this and, and i walked up over that next little rise and he was laying down before me and that was, was a pretty special moment that's cool after the shots when i always get the most nervous i think even if i see him go down <laughs> for whatever reason so when you got to him i mean how's that feel that's a lifelong dream of yours to shoot a buck that breaks 200. Ever since I was a little boy, I, uh, my mom gave me some of my elementary journals that they make us. Guess what it's all about? Killing a big mule deer. I mean, I'd watch my grandfather and my dad bring these huge bucks home. You know, and I've killed numerous deer that, that, are, that I'm proud of, but I've always just dreamed of killing a giant. You know, and I've hunted every year, and it's never happened yet. Standing over that buck... Man, that was, I'll tell you what, I lost it. I mean, because it was a, some people climb Everest. That was my Everest. It really was. And to finally have all my hard work and everything that I've worked so hard for and, you know, felt like I've got beat up time and time again, finally, you know, even I caught a lucky streak and caught that lucky star. And, and, you know, hard work and persistence, you know, even even I could could meet that goal, so... It was it was pretty unreal. Yeah, that's awesome. So then uh, then Taylor comes over. You find out he just killed a giant buck too. Yeah, it was fun. There was three shots that came from over there where he was, and he he was hunting a different deer that we'd seen, just a stud deer. So I was hoping, you know, I mean, I left my radio on, but I don't know what it was. We really couldn't talk much, and then all of a sudden the radio came on and. He said, I I heard a shot, two shots over there where you were. Was that you? And, you know, I I said, yeah, and I got him. And, and he started freaking out. And then he said, you know, I, I just killed a 190-inch deer, too. And I was just like, what? <laughs> you know? And so he said that he'd already had his buck taken care of and was already done with him. And so he was starting to work his way towards me and um I just kept working on the, on the deer on my buck and you know it was pretty it was pretty neat for for both of us to when he rounded the corner cuz he knows what that goal has been for me and then just to see his deer you know the only bad thing about this is you know his deer hasn't got the credit it deserves i mean it's it's a phenomenal deer you know when you have a a true 200 inch typical you know and they're laying side by side everyone talks about the 200 inch typical and, you know it's the biggest deer he's killed in here and every i mean he did it all himself too he scouted and it was just you know give him credit too because not everyone kills a deer of that caliber i mean i never had until this <laughs> no that's a sweet buck when billy came in tonight to record this here i'm holding the, his stories published in the eastman's journal February, March edition, right? I don't know, whatever they call it, mule deer issue. Let's talk about that a little bit. I think that's something that we don't hear a ton about. It's sort of that process of um, getting published in a magazine, right? So, I mean, first step's obviously killing a buck, but kind of go over that and 
how what led to what and how that worked out and kind of what they expect you to have and what you do in the field to prepare for that sort of thing well of course you know i was pretty proud of the steer and you know i mean they're just so rare when they're typicals like that true just giant typicals um you know once i posted it on social media it kind of went nuts and i had i had a few people a few magazines um actually contact me to write a story and i just you know looking through i've always grown up when i was a little boy you know some some people dream of having themselves on a a rookie baseball card or whatever mine was always to be you know in eastman's magazine because that's what i used to used to read and when eastman's reached out to me you know i definitely knew that that's probably where i would go um so basically they just reached out to me they sent me an email about you know kind of what they wanted of course you know the more pictures you have the better um and they wanted me to just write a story and then kept communicating with them and you know eventually it was published this time so really other than writing the story and just having the be- the, the most important things you can kill the biggest deer on the mountain but unless you have not only really good harvest pictures which that's one thing that I never have done prior to this year I mean I'd take a few with a cell phone and then call it good you know but even having a really good camera that you can document the whole process, I mean, that's one thing that's just been so special to me is I get to relive this, you know, because it's just not in my mind I have those those pictures, you know, and it helps tell that story of just the journey. And, you know, I mean, it's called the pursuit, and that's I truly believe that, you know, it's the pursuit in trying to, you know, accomplish those goals that, you know, and having that, those pictures to to tell that story is a pretty special thing. Yeah, for sure. I started carrying cameras. Well, it's been a little, quite a few years ago to kind of film and you know, like we put videos and stuff out on the Altitude YouTube channel and stuff like that. But you know, really, those are more for me than anybody else, right? Like, and I think you probably feel the same. Oh, way. totally. Like you, you document that stuff, but it's mostly so you can look back on it. Well, and and another thing is just the buddies and the people that you're there. I mean, it's it means so much to them. I mean, even the the, the video that I put together, it's nowhere. I mean, it's the first one I've ever done, so it wasn't great. But you know, I know that means a lot to my to my dad and my my brother. You know, and that's something that we'll share in those memories. You know, in that footage. You know, it just it just brings back everything that you know, what we experienced, and I mean, that's why I hunt big mule there, it's not, it's not to have them hanging on the wall, it's for the experiences and the people I get to share it with, and having that recorded even brings that so much, you know, so much full circle. Well, cool, man, thanks for sharing your story, I, uh, if you guys want to watch that video, it's on, uh, Billy's YouTube channel, what is that, just Billy Kennington, and the, you can probably just search in the search bar for Billy Kennington or The Pursuit. But, yeah, go check that out. Or uh, you can read his story in Eastman's Hunting Journal. We we might put a little another twist on that story and publish it on altitudeoutdoors.com. And if we do that, I will definitely share links on all of our social media accounts where you can follow us on Facebook or Instagram or any of those places. So as far as following you, Billy, what's the best way to do that if people aren't already and they want to i'm on facebook and instagram facebook is just my name billy kennington and then my handle on instagram is a wow big buck hunter big buck billy he won't change it to big buck billy for some reason 
Anything else you want to cover while we're on the air? Uh, just one thing that, that I did this year talking about gear. I don't think I've never heard any of the, any anyone say this. Um, I, I said that I had a spotter, but I really stopped using a spotter this year. Uh, all my scouting footage and everything was mostly through the binos. And once I'm finding binos, I was actually checking them with this. Uh, it's a Nikon Coolpix P900 camera. It's got an 82x optical zoom in it. Um, it's a bridge camera, and so, you know, I mean, it's not DSLR quality for stills, but, you know, the... the the photos are actually pretty amazing. It's a little bit extra to pack, but, you know, scouting and everything, I found that I was never pulling my spotter out. I was just using binos in this camera because the camera was just the footage. And, I mean, with an 82X zoom on it, I mean, there's no spotter alive that you can get that close with. And it just, I mean, it's got, I mean, just 1080p video. And so just the footage that I was getting from a 1,000 yards away was just unreal. Uh, and so... I actually sold my spot, my big spotter, and I bought a little spotter to glass with, but when I'm checking bucks, it's mainly with that camera. Um, that way it's dual purpose. Um, I was a little bit worried about the battery life, but having, you know, lithium batteries that are available now, and even the cold, you know, I've taken it, I took it on that, uh, that mule deer capture and was and used it all day and I only used one battery. So, that's um, good. you know, that's one thing that's totally changed everything for me is just being able to get that close, you know, with that 82x zoom. And now, I mean, now Nikon has one that's even more zoom than that. Yeah, so P P1000. I did an article and a and there's a there's a video on our on the Altitude Outdoors YouTube channel that kind of goes over the advantages of the bridge cameras and I mean that's probably a two-year-old video now maybe a year and a half um so there's obviously new options out there but you know it's kind of a non-traditional thing to think about and i i've carried a bridge camera when we were first getting into filming we just didn't have the budget to go out and buy huge lenses for dslrs or whatever and so it's when my brother and i were going to film an antelope hunt in wyoming and we picked up a bridge camera with a, I think it only had like a 25x optical or something like that. We were able to do everything we needed to with it. And so now, I mean, there's that P900, which that's probably a model year, and that's probably three years old now. Don't you think? Oh, I'm yeah. not sure. 2015 yeah, I think or 16. So. so they have their new one out. Um, last year, I upgraded that old one that we had to a Panasonic Lumix FC80, I think. It's got a 60x, 60x zoom, but it's like a $300 camera. It doesn't it doesn't do stills like my DSLRs, but the video quality is phenomenal. I mean, even the phone scope stuff, I mean, that is scouting, you know, I mean, it's just get as much video as much as you can because, you know, then you can really come back. In the moment, you kind of... You, you can kind of get excited, and then when you come back, you can either say, oh, that buck's, that buck's awesome, or that buck maybe not be as, as good, but... Being being able to, I mean, there's some of my old scouting footage and stuff that I've looked at. It's just like, oh, I wish I could just get closer. Because sometimes, I mean, you're up on those vantages and you're just looking as much country as you can. Sometimes those bucks are, you know, half mile away. Some, and I've just never been able to get as close as I can with that camera, and it's pretty unreal. And, you know, and then to have that quality of, of video behind it, you know, so you can truly study it is pretty neat. We've heard the pros. What any drawbacks that you've seen from good jumping into a camera versus a spotter? 
can't glass with it. The only thing you can do is check something. So if you're sitting on a ridge all day, you still need a spotter. I mean, you still have to look in the shadows for bedded bucks. If you're glassing all day, there's just you just can't do it with the camera. So, but I pack a, I pack a smaller spotter. I'm running that 11 by 33 then the, and the razor from yeah in Vortex, you know. And then anything that I need to check or anything like that, I just pull the camera out. So can look in shadows. And there's been times that I've said, you know, even with the spotter, even with my other big spotter that I used to, is that you know, is that an antler tip? You know, just having that, that, just the ability to zoom in on it. I mean, you can, <laughs> it's amazing what you can see. Because I've done the same things as you, I, I haven't gone away from my spotter. I still carry a 65 millimeter and then usually two cameras and have overkill for everything. But uh, I would say that only, the only time I've had issues with those is in really low light, right? With where a spotter, you're not going to be able to film through your spotter, but you're going to be able to look through your spotter. You are correct. If you are looking through a lot of like brushy country or something, you know, the with the optical zoom and stuff, sometimes a camera will actually autofocus or something on something closer, so you can't really get, you know, that. So if you're in super super thick stuff, um, but what I found is, you know, even switching it to manual mode and manual focusing it, I've still been able to do it. Again, it takes more time. Again, I wouldn't if. If we were hunting or something, I wouldn't be sitting there worried about whatever. If there's a deer, I'm going to be on my rifle scope anyways. But um, there is times that I have been just that when we were scouting that one time, Brad had his spotter. You know, I didn't even I didn't even take a spotter because um, I knew you had one and then I had my camera. So, um, And that was really frustrating because it kept just focusing on the trees that we were looking through in, in really dim light. But but it was it was bad light like i i couldn't get anything i have phone scope footage of that buck we were trying to look at and i still can't tell what he is really <laughs> thanks billy that was a funded kind of deep dive into your hunt from this fall and congratulations on your success like that's a buck of a lifetime uh mount looks great he killed it it's amazing and you know again it's just look at it every day and it's just it's still surreal but that's just another thing that i can say you know there's so many guys out there that want this and it just hasn't happened you just got to keep keep at it i mean everyone everyone can get lucky you just got to put the time in and just keep going don't don't give up on your dreams you just keep working hard keep at it and eventually it'll happen yeah that's good advice i think uh if you work hard enough most things will happen for you you can make up for other deficiencies that you have with hard work for sure so thank you billy and uh, thanks to all of you for tuning in and listening uh once again this is the episode of the hunt the high country podcast brought to you by altitude outdoors please feel free to follow along subscribe uh your support means a ton to us so thank you very much You're listening to the Hunt the High Country podcast, brought to you by AltitudeOutdoors.com.